Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Welcome to our Thursday night Parsha Shear, Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, May 7th, 2020, and this week's Parsha is the Parsha of Emor. If you have a Chumash, we're going to use the stone Chumash, the blue stone Chumash that we use in Adaf. If you don't have it, don't worry because I'm only quoting a few words from it. But if you have the Chumash, you could turn to page 672, the beginning of the Parsha. Page 672, Pasuk Aleph, top of the page, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe, Emor el kohanim b'nei Aharon, say to the Kahanim, the children of Aharon, Vamarta Alehem, say to them, Lenefesh lo Yitama Ba'amav, do not allow yourselves to come into direct contact, God forbid, with a dead body or to become tame, ritually impure. And then it goes on with the other laws, personal laws that re- refer to a Kohen, about who a Kohen is allowed to marry, not allowed to marry. So we have these special laws that apply only to a Kohen, the priests, and these laws are a component of the higher level of sanctity and holiness, kedusha, and spiritual leadership that the Kohanim are supposed to provide to the Jewish people. But let's consider for a moment, what does a Kohen actually do all day long as a Kohen? When the Beis Amigdash is standing, the Holy Temple in Yerushalayim, and the Kohen is serving, officiating in that Holy Temple, what exactly does he do? Well, here's what he does. A day in the life of a Kohen in the Beis Amigdash. He does a lot of slaughtering because there are animal sacrifices, so the first thing is you have to shack them. So he does a lot of slaughtering. He does a lot of butchering, cutting up the animal. He does a lot of roasting because you then have to eat parts of that animal. He does a lot of eating because he receives gifts of meat and uh, bread types of food and wine and oil and other things and he eats and he has to spend time cleaning up. That's what the Kohen does. That's basically what his day looks like. Slaughtering, roasting, eating, and cleaning up. But Rabbi Menachem Penner points out what makes the Kohen special is that he does this with an intense consciousness that it is lifnei Hashem, before God. In the Beis HaMikdash, in God's house, his actions are before God's eyes. The eyes of God are on him. And he realizes that he is in the most important place in the world, the Beit HaMikdash, and he realizes that he is the conduit of every single Jew, not only every Jew, every single person who wishes to come closer to God. And it's with that intensity and with that consciousness and with that realization 
that they elevate what actually is rather mundane activities to sublime service, calling for all of the laws and the restrictions of a Kohen to facilitate that higher level of holiness. And then, along comes a simple Jew who shows up in the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And he brings with him the first of his work. He brings a gift of truma, the gift that is brought to the Kohen from his first crops. Now that gift that he brings to the Kohen, Truma, is kadosh, it's holy, it's sanctified. But it is sanctified by the designation of this owner when he said at his home, before he started out, this is Truma, this is dedicated and designated to bring to the Kohen. It doesn't become holy by the Kohen. It doesn't become holy through the Kohen. It becomes holy through the designation of the owner. And at that moment, when the Kohen greets this simple Jew, bringing his first fruits, the Kohen gets to appreciate that any Jew, the simplest Jew, can have and create unimaginable holiness that does not come from the Kohen. And that reinforces for the Kohen and for every one of us when we review this, for example, this Shabbos, that the deepest holiness does not just come from who you are, and it does not even come from what you do. The deepest holiness comes primarily from the awareness you have when doing that mundane task that it is in fact lifnei Hashem before God's eyes, in God's presence. That is what creates holiness. So I've said this before. I know I'm repeating myself, but it is true. And I feel like I need a reminder. Maybe you also can benefit from a reminder. And that is that this concept, which is the heart of our Parsha, this is so applicable to helping us as we go through this pandemic. When we wash our hands, when we take precautions, most importantly, when we stay home, that is the highest mitzvah in the Torah. The mitzvah of v'nishmartem ma'od l'nafshosechem. God commands us to be exceedingly cautious concerning our health and the health of others. That is a mitzvah that takes priority over every other mitzvah so that God's eyes are on us with love and pride as we fulfill His most 
important request to us. Being aware of how important our staying home is to God, how holy it is, how it takes priority over every other mitzvah, that should give us the strength to do it, even if it lasts longer than we think we can handle. Because we can handle it. If we do it, lift Hashem in front of God's eyes, with God's eyes watching it. If we do it, and while we do it, we realize how holy and beloved this is in God's eyes. <clears throat> I want to move to a completely different subject. So, in Jewish law, in a monetary case, let's say you have a dispute between two parties and it's a monetary issue. So, what's supposed to happen is the two parties go to Besdin, they go to a Jewish court to adjudicate their case. And the Besdin, the court, will offer two different routes to deal with the case. One route is known as Din, which means strict justice, and that involves interrogating witnesses, reviewing evidence, applying what the law says to this case. That's Din. Or, there's another route, and that's called Pshara. Pshara means to find a settlement, to find a compromise. The Talmud has a dispute. Which is preferred? Which should a court do? Which should litigants ask for? And the conclusion in the Talmud is that the preferable route is pshara, settlement or compromise. Why? So for this we have a famous and classic lecture by the Rav, Rav Yosef Salavajic, a blessed memory. And he writes, Din, having a case proceed with strict justice, pits one party against the other. One party emerges the victor, his case is vindicated. The plea of the other is denied. The immediate issue is resolved, but the conflict persists with ensuing social discord. In Pshara, however, the Rav writes, social harmony is the primary concern of the judges. The goal is not to be juridically astute, but to be socially healing. For this reason, pshara is the preferred alternative. Because the Torah wants the judge not only to be a magistrate, but to be a teacher and a healer. His responsibility is primarily to enlighten 
rather than render decisions on points of law. Practically speaking, this is in fact what happens even today. Even today, two parties go to Besdin to adjudicate a case between them. The Besdin will always suggest and in many cases will insist that they proceed the case following the root of Pshara. That is how Jewish law works today. Okay. So, you may know I have the great uh, privilege to teach a course in Talmudic law at McGill University Law School. And I'm just now in the middle of grading the final research papers. And one of my students in their paper made a very insightful point. And that is, not only is pshara preferred because the ultimate goal of justice is to heal society, but the actual laws themselves express this value, even where pshara is not applicable. For example, in criminal law. Criminal law, there is no possibility of compromise, but let me share an example. She, at, This student actually shared some examples from what she had researched and she did it in a very good way. I want to share an example of this from our Parsha. So you may know that the Torah uh, legislates capital punishment, execution for certain limited crimes. The oral law, which accompanies the written law, makes it very rare for that actually to happen. It's required to have two eyewitnesses. There are many criteria to who those witnesses must be, how the, they must act. The witnesses have to give a warning in advance. It almost never happened. And it ceased completely about 2,000 years ago when the destruction of the Beis Amigdash took place around that time. But let's look for a moment at the system of laws around capital punishment on those rare cases long ago when it was actually practiced. And I'm going to ask you now to turn to page 692 if you're following in the Chumash. If you're not following the Chumash, don't worry. But in the Stone Chumash, you could turn to page 692, Pasek number Yudbeis, number 12. So the Torah says that there was a man who committed a crime, a terrible crime. What the crime is, is not necessary for our purposes now. But what happened was, God had not yet revealed to Moshe or the Jewish people what the punishment was for this crime. So, Pasuk Yudbeis, I'm on 692, verse 12, Pasuk Yudbeis, Vayani they placed this man into a jail, Lifrosh Lahem 
Hashem, to wait until God would tell them what is the punishment, and then they would do it. So, here's a really important concept in Jewish law, which, by the way, um, contains lessons to apply that could be applied to legal systems around us today, like Canada and the United States. Prison, putting someone in prison, is not used in Jewish law as a punishment. Jail, which means uh, putting some, holding on to someone before the court case, jail is only used in Jewish law for this kind of short-term usage. Another example is, um, the Torah says a person um, injured another person very seriously. And it's not clear whether the victim will live or die. So, of course, it makes a tremendous difference to the victim and his family, but it also makes a very big difference to the perpetrator, whether he is going to be charged with assault or charged with murder. So the Torah says, under certain circumstances, we would place that person in a jail for a short amount of time because we don't want him to run away because he knows whatever he's facing is going to be bad. So we place him in jail in order to figure out whether we are charging him with assault or with murder. Here, again, it's a very short-term thing. By the next day, God is going to tell them what to do to this person. So, this man spends the night in jail not knowing what is going to happen to him tomorrow. As it turns out, the jail was not empty. There was already someone else there. There was another man there who had committed a terrible sin whose punishment was capital punishment and he was going to be executed the next day. So, for this one night, there are two prisoners overnight in this jail. One prisoner definitely will be executed tomorrow. The other prisoner, it's uncertain what is going to happen to him tomorrow. However, let me end the suspense. We do later learn in the Torah that Hashem says, yes, he also receives capital punishment and he was also executed. So look at the words of the part of the Pasuk again. Again, page 692, Pasuk Yudbez, number 12. Now that's an unusual form of the word. And they placed him in the jail. Our rabbis explain the unusual form of the word means he was placed in a jail by himself, not with the other fellow. Which is very strange. I mean, it's at least curious. First of all, jail was uncommon to begin with. It was never used after a court decision. And it was only rarely used to hold a person before a court decision. Why not put them together for one night? Why find two different jails? Put them together. And remember, just just remember, we're not talking about such tzaddikim here. We're talking about two people 
who both did terrible sins and ultimately we learn that both of them did sins that are so terrible that it was incompatible with remaining alive and they were executed. So that's that, that's who we're talking about. So why two cells? Why not put them together? Here's an answer provided by Rabbi Azriel Lanke. And the answer goes like this. The fellow who was going to be executed the next day was already in a jail cell. Now you have the second fellow who at this moment we do not know if he is going to be executed or some other punishment. To put him together in the cell with the person who is definitely going to be executed would be a violation of the principle of Inui Hadin, causing anguish through our judgment. It would have caused him to be more upset than he had to be because he would have said to himself, look who they put me with. They put me with the guy who's being executed tomorrow. Presumably that means that that's what's going to happen to me as well. Even though, yes, that is what happened to him. But why did he have to have the anxiety of that one night of being there? It may, let him be in a separate place and he could think to himself, maybe I'll get off. Maybe it'll be a lighter sentence. He wouldn't have been so anxious. He probably was pretty anxious to begin with, but he would not have been as anxious as having been put together in the cell with the other guy. And again, it turns out that what he did calls for capital punishment and he was executed. He was a terrible, terrible person. He was a rush, a wicked person just like the other guy. In truth, there is no difference between the wickedness of the two people. It's just that one of them didn't know about it yet. But what we see from this is that a Jew is still a Jew and a human being is still a human being. And even such a person must be treated with sensitivity. So that the laws themselves, we're not talking about Pshara, we're not letting them off, we're not compromising, but simply in the day, way that we deal with him calls for easing anxiety, remembering the innate worth of every human being, even the worst even in imposing capital punishment, we cannot lose our own humanity. Now, we today in Canada do not have capital punishment. Thank God. And we don't have capital punishment in Jewish law for over 2,000 years. Thank God. But it's still a very, very important lesson for us. And the lesson is, if the Torah is so concerned about the sensitivity and the feelings of such a person who did a terrible crime and in fact was actually executed by God's word, but the Torah still tells us, no, put him in a little bit nicer place. Don't let him be so frightened on his last night on earth. How much more so 
do we need to be sensitive to the feelings and concerns of each other who have not dropped to such depths of a serious crime? It is a tremendous lesson. It is something we can all learn from, even though the subject is not practically applicable to us, but it has something very deep to teach us about the nature of Jewish law and about the way we are supposed to act towards each other.